This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. Right On, showcasing the work and lives of Otago and Southland writers. Tune in for news and interviews with your local writers on the second Wednesday of every month from noon to one and repeated the following Sunday at 11am. The university bookshop is evil because it tempts me so with its otherworldly, picture-perfect, just-smell-those-books-and-breathe atmosphere, with its staff who entice me with, Oh, look, have you read this? Or have you seen that? And we know you need this. With its cruelly situated right at the front so you trip over at New Zealand new releases table. And worst of all, worst of all, with the irresistible treasures in Book Lovers Corner, the university bookshop is evil. You have been warned. Good afternoon and welcome. You're listening to Otago Access Radio and right on with Vanda Simon, which is the show of the Otago Southland branch of the New Zealand Society of Authors and sponsored by the fabulous University Bookshop. Now I'm looking forward to another year of bringing you chats with fascinating people from the world of books. So grab your lunch and a cuppa and listen in. Well, Dr. Mira Harrison is a doctor-turned writer who has worked in the public health system in Britain and New Zealand. She's a research associate professor and also a writer of fiction. Now, Mira has recently released New Admissions, a short story collection and follow-up to her first collection, Admissions. Mira, welcome to the show. Hi, Vanda. Thanks for inviting me. Now, you've worked for many years in the health system and have had a lot also experience in the um, academia, in the academic, uh, with academic writing, having published books. What drew you into wanting to fulfil creative writing? Well, as you say, I have um, experience in the hospital world and in the world of academia, and I'd actually um, written two medical textbooks before I started writing fiction, um, which I enjoyed, but it is a different discipline. And I'd had a yearning for many years to write some stories, um, to be creative, and I had an idea for a, for one story to start with. It was just um, a story about a receptionist in a public hospital and a refugee who she meets. And I drafted that story and that ultimately became the collection admissions. I went on to write seven more stories about different women in different roles in the hospital. So it started really just um, with one story and it grew into my first book, which was published in, at the end of 2018. Now, of course, in academic world, um, being an academic myself, life is all evidence-based and citing. So how, how refreshing was it for you to be able to just write what you pleased? That's right. I mean, it was wonderful, actually. I really do enjoy being able to make it up because, as you say, in um, scientific writing, everything we write is evidence-based and it has to be factually correct and checked and rechecked. And I just love the freedom of fiction, of creating characters, making up stories. Many, in fact, most of my stories are based on truthful experiences that I have had in the hospital world, mostly. Um, But nevertheless, the characters are invented and they're made up from numerous people that I've known and worked with and they are original creations. They're products of my imagination and I love it. Yeah, so never be a writer's friend (laughs) or family. (laughs) And of course, the other thing with um, academic writing is you have to do the punchline up front and then reinforce it. So how nice was it for you to then be able to do creative writing where you could have um, the story spin out over time? 
Yes, I mean, I'm, I'm learning all the time in writing creatively and in writing fiction that there are m many different ways of writing. You can um, say the most important thing first, which is what you're always taught to do in journalism and scientific writing, or you can actually jump in in the middle and you can... There is a great freedom, I think, with writing fiction that you can play around with it and you can use different techniques and you can be... It, as experimental as you like, really. I mean, my stories, they are more uh, realist stories based on um, real women's lives, and they are, they're they not what I would call experimental literature. Um, but yes, I do really enjoy um, playing around with, with the creative form. Mm. And no, as, as well as the, um, as you've already mentioned, a lot of your stories are based on your own experiences. Now, what else has working in health and hospitals brought to your storytelling? Well, I think really what it brought was that I, when I worked in hospitals, I um, I worked as an obstetrician gynaecologist um, after I did my hospital jobs in the UK, and I worked in women's health, and I realised that many of the people working in hospitals are women, often in unrecognised roles doing almost invisible jobs, but jobs that are just so important to caring and looking after people, and that's really what I wanted to write about. I wanted to put women centre stage in my stories and tell their stories and the institution I wrote about was a hospital and there are many specific things about that as a workplace but there are lots of other workplaces where women do multiple roles and where they balance their personal and their private lives and and that's those are the type of things I wanted to write about although I often write about specific medical procedures and technical aspects of medicine the stories that I write really are about the people doing the jobs and what motivates them and the struggles they have and the conflicts they have and it comes and those um, those kind of themes come from a very deep place within me and I think that um, those are the um, the themes that I enjoy writing about in fiction. And that was the wonderful things about admissions. You have eight stories there and eight quite different perspectives across a whole range of people within that hospital. Like say from the the invisible, the cleaners, through to your, your physicians. So yes, um, I really wanted to um, to show women in different roles in the hospital. I wanted to show the cleaners and the cooks, but I also wanted to show that women can be leaders, that women can be professors, that women can be the lead surgeon at an operating table. I wanted to show all the different roles that, that women can play and the, the specific um, qualities I think that women bring to those roles. And one of the other lovely things was showing that um, the vulnerabilities of women are valuable as well in, in that workplace and how they interact with other people. Absolutely. I mean, women are vulnerable and we have many uh, things to deal with. Often women are the people responsible for childcare. We have lots of demands on our time looking after the elderly. These are all things that we often do in addition to our professional lives, but they impact on our professional lives. And no person is just the, the doctor at work or whatever job you do. There is all of these um, relationships that you have in your life and, and they affect how you do your job. And that was one of the, the pleasures of reading the collections was that these stories were entirely relatable. You know, as, as, as a, um, a mum who also has a professional job and works like that and has other community roles as well, I could, I could relate to these characters, which was great. Oh, thank you. Now, 
have you found with your writing, you know, you just started out with writing one story, that it has actually had a benefit from for you as a way to decompress or unpack your day and what's happening in your day? Oh, absolutely. I find that writing is really therapeutic for me. I do believe in, in reading. I've often said to, um, to patients or to friends over the years about bibliotherapy, the, the power of reading. But for, for me, writing is very therapeutic and it is a way to explore ideas. I think it was Margaret Atwood who said, I don't know how I feel about something until I write it down and I think I'm one of those people that I do find the whole process of um, of writing a piece um, explores how I actually feel about an issue whether it's non-fiction or fiction and that I really enjoy that procedure. And do you find by putting that little lens of examination on yourself you start um, thinking in ways differently than you might have if you were just taking your day at a surface level. I think so, yes. I think when I'm writing, I find that I'm thinking on a much deeper level about all sorts of human behaviour, about episodes that have happened in my life that I'm perhaps bringing into my writing. And I think it does sort of push you to a, to another level of thinking. And sometimes you have to kind of snap yourself back to reality and make dinner or clean the house or <laughs> all the chores that we have to do. But I really do enjoy that, again, that part of writing. Mm. Now, the subtitles of, of your books, Tales of Life, Death and Love, you know, do sum up that range of experiences and the emotions and the impacts um, that they have on your characters. So how did you find writing, for example, you know, about something as sensitive as death? Well, as a doctor, um, you spend much of your time dealing with birth and with death. I was an obstetrician, so more often I was at the end of life where we were bringing new life into the world. But of course, as a doctor, when I was doing other medical jobs, I dealt with death often on a on a daily basis during my house jobs um, this was back in the UK at the end of the 1980s we had patients dying on the ward daily and it did something that you come to terms with very early on as a doctor I mean I was 23 years old when I qualified that's very young to be suddenly out there and dealing with these kind of issues and I think at the time you just there's so much to deal with you just get on with it and and do it but the good thing about writing is that it actually allows you to explore all of those things, these these huge issues, these huge human, the things that happen to us as humans. And death, of course, is all around us, even if we are not dying tomorrow or the next week or the next month. We, This is something that we have to um, explore, or I feel I have to explore as a writer. And I thought in admissions um, it would be a good way of structuring the stories. There are eight stories about eight different women, but I also thought about chronologies in the book. So I started the stories at the beginning of the book start with new beginnings and with birth, and there's a story about an obstetrician early on. And then as you go through the, the book, they work towards the end of life and towards death. And I found that was a pleasing way to curate the stories and that gives the book hopefully a, a, a wholeness and a roundness. Um, and yeah, I think that's what I tried to do with that book. Mm. And it reflects that, whole, that, that we are in a cycle of, of life. 
life indeed. We are, absolutely. And I think we all know that death is not the end, that when we write about death, when we experience death of a loved one close up, that that isn't the end, that um, our feelings about that person and the life that they had and the life we had with them go on. And it's those, I think, are fascinating things to write about. Mm. New Admissions is tales of life, um, death and love in the time of lockdown. Now, such a very recent experience for us all. So did you have a little internal debate at all about the how soon is too soon to write about this or, you know, take the sooner we talk about it, the better approach? Well, I wasn't actually intending to write a book, another collection of short stories. I after finishing admissions, I really had no intention of another follow-up collection. I was actually working on my first novel, which was set is is set in a completely different time. It's set at the end of the 1980s. It's set in another country in the UK, and I had actually no intention of writing another book. But as the pandemic reached New Zealand and all of our lives changed, I've, I felt compelled to write about the times that we live in, and. There was no choice, really. I felt that I had to put the novel aside, that there were things that I wanted to write about, things that were happening to me as a, as a mother in that time, as a female health professional. There were things that I was observing, things that I was feeling, and I... Again, it started with one story. I wrote one story. The first story in the book, which is called Mistake, was based on my experiences at a supermarket um, here in Dunedin. And I, um, the two days before lockdown, and I had some interesting experiences. And so I came home and I, I wrote it down. And so one story about the very early time in the pandemic. And then I thought it would be useful um well, perhaps not useful, but just more complete to write some more stories and put them together in another collection. So it's just four stories, but it's um, four quite different stories again. And um, it, it encompasses my experiences during the early um, time of lockdown. And what kind of feedback have you had from um, people in, who have read you know, in writing about lockdown experiences? I've had very good feedback in terms of people have said really um, good things about the book that they have enjoyed, that they've related to a lot of the experiences that, I, that I've written about, um, which has been good. People, I think it's really interesting, and I'm sure you find this as a writer, that readers react really differently mm. to, um, <laughs> to different stories. And one thing I sometimes like to do is ask readers which of my stories in, in each book they like the best or the least to, to try and sort of get... I, I really do enjoy hearing readers' reactions. So if anyone listening has read my books and wants to um, email me about what they thought about the stories, I always love hearing back. Um, I think we learn a lot as writers from listening to the responses we get from our readers. And it's always really interesting to see um, which particular stories have resonated with individuals based on their own experience too. So yes, it, um, get back to the authors, be all. <laughs> yeah, it really is. And actually people um, quite often react differently to how you might experience Mm. There's sometimes someone who you think, well, oh, I thought that they would love that story best, but they, they don't. And then they, they say why that story resonated with them. And then you learn something about your reader, which is I find fascinating too. <laughs> admissions and new admissions are short story collections. Um, so what drew you to that particular form of writing? 
I think I've always enjoyed writing short stories. When I was a medical student, I used to, just for fun, just for kind of relaxation, if you like, I used to write short stories, and I do enjoy that form. But I think it was also something manageable to start with, that I've always wanted to write this novel, and I've always wanted to write fiction. But a novel is such a huge undertaking, it's such a massive thing that you need a huge amount of time to do. And one of the other things about a short story is it felt more manageable, that I could um, write a story in a few days, and of course you don't complete a story in a few days, you have to go back and rework it and edit it. But it did feel something manageable. And with admissions, I actually really enjoyed the process of writing these eight different stories from eight different women's perspectives and then bringing them together. And I think that's one thing I would say about my books is that they're not just collections of random short stories Mm. that have no relation particularly to each other. They're all themed around a central place, the hospital where these women work, and they, some of the characters are linked in admissions, some of the characters are friends with each other. And I enjoyed that actually, writing um, eight different stories, but with links between the characters and themes that run through the book. So whilst my books are collections of short stories, I also consider them almost like novels because they have a, they have a whole theme. Mm. And that was one of the little reward treats as a reader was just seeing those little overlaps and going, ah, <laughs> I see what she did there. <laughs> Now, um, you wrote these stories, um, which is one step, but then you wanted to take the next step, brave step of sharing them with the world. How did you go about publishing your books? Well, I went the very conventional route with admissions. I sent them to a um, publisher in New Zealand. Um, I sent them to Steele Roberts, Aotearoa, and he was Roger Steele um, was at that time he was the the head of that publishing company and he was the first person I sent the stories to and it was a dream come true really the first publisher I sent them to he said he loved the stories and he would publish them (laughs) so so that was that was actually really um, it it was great because you hear the stories of the um, of people sending them out to so many different publishers and I got an immediate answer really and um, it was published admissions was published a few months after I wrote it now with new admissions it was slightly more difficult because I did approach um, Steel Roberts but they um, Roger Steele's now retired and the company is is actually no longer taking on new books and there aren't many other publishers in New Zealand to approach and I also really wanted to get the, the new admissions out last year it mm. the, felt as if there was some urgency about it because I was writing about this time that we, we were living through and I felt quite determined that I wanted the stories published before the end of the year so I contacted um, a group called the Copy Press in Nelson who um, are work with people who want to self-publish their books um, and I also but in doing that I really also wanted to work with a professional editor to get because the experience of working with um, Roger Steele had been so valuable in editing my stories and I wanted to make sure that they were of the highest possible standard so I worked with the lovely Michelle Elvey another Dunedin writer and um, she edited the stories in new admissions and then I shared them with the world by publishing them with the copy press. 
So what would, you know, what recommendations or advice would you give would-be writers who are looking at taking that pathway of publishing their own works? My advice, having done both with my um, first two works of fiction, would be for your first work, I would definitely go with a publisher. I would try, um, I think they give you so much help and advice and that we all need that as writers. We need editors, we need to be um, regulated, we need advice and as much as though you think, we all think our books are great don't we? because <laughs> we write, oh I love this and, and then you hate it and then you love it and then, but I think the experience of working in the conventional system I found very valuable and I, that would be my advice would be to go and difficult though it is to find a publisher via the conventional route for your first book. I think for other books that once you become an established writer and if you want to get something out quickly, I've enjoyed the process of self-publishing because it, it worked very well for me. But I have to say with my novel that I'm drafting, I'll be going back to the conventional the conventional method and trying to get it accepted by a publishing house. (laughs) And yeah, so um, the next step on your creative writing journey is continuing on with this novel. How has writing this a long form of fiction differed from your experience of doing the interlinked stories? Well, it is to say to state the obvious. It is much longer, and it's a much longer process. And um, my novel is about seventy-five thousand words, eighty thousand words, which is twice the length of admissions. It does feel um, I've been working on it a lot longer. I've been working, uh, put it aside for the few months that I was writing new admissions. But I, the, before that, I was working on it for for about a year. So it is a long process. I. I'm writing it in three parts, which I'm hoping, um, which has helped um, using that structure has helped me focus on one part than the other. But yes, it is quite it, it is quite a challenge, as I know that you will appreciate as a novelist yourself. And I, uh, it, it's going. I'm just getting back to it in the new year. It's my New Year's resolution that I'm back to the manuscript, and I am starting from the start and going through it all again. Um, and I think the process of writing new admissions has actually really helped because mm. I feel it um, it took my writing to the to another level because we're always learning as writers one of the things I love about it but we are always learning and trying to do better and I think I did learn quite a bit from writing new admissions so I'm trying to bring that take that back to the novel and use the hopefully my improved skills to to make the novel um, better than it is at the moment because it does need I know it needs quite a lot of work. (laughs) Fantastic well thank you so much Mira for coming on the show today and talking about your books admissions and new admissions and all the very best with your novel. Thank you very much Vanda. We're just going to take a short music break. Be back soon. You're back again, but I'm so sorry.
university bookshop is evil because it tempts me so with its otherworldly, picture-perfect, just-smell-those-books-and-breathe atmosphere, with its staff who entice me with, Ooh, look, have you read this? Or have you seen that? And we know you need this. With its cruelly situated right at the front so you trip over at New Zealand new releases table. And worst of all, worst of all, with the irresistible treasures in Book Lovers Corner, the university bookshop is evil. You have been warned. Welcome back. You're listening to Otago Access Radio and right on with Vanda Simon, which is the show of the Otago Southland branch of the New Zealand Society of Authors, and it's sponsored by that great team at the University Bookshop. Well, last year I had the great pleasure of talking to fisherman extraordinaire Douglas Rulestone about his book and an incredible journey that he took and the book called Upstream at the Matara. So I'm sharing that again with you today as a little summer blast from the past. Dougal Rulestone is a fly fisher of great renown and he has recently written Upstream on the Matara, a fly fisher's journey to source. Dougal, welcome to the show. Thank you, Vanda. Now, I would love to start by talking about your personal connection to the Matara River. So tell us about how big a part it has been of your life. Well, it's been a huge part of my life. Um, It goes back right to the beginning, uh, really. I was talking to my mother not that long ago about um, uh, her coming home from the hospital in Gore, where I was born. She was, uh, the pregnancy wasn't so great, and um, and so she was in there for some time, and she was desperate to leave the hospital. And she said as she crossed over the Gore Bridge with my father, and I was uh, this little baby in the back of the car, uh, she burst into tears and asked Dad to, to drive off to the side, and they pulled up beside the river, and they talked about, she was just so delighted to be out of the hospital. So I had this, I didn't know that, but it was a kind of wonderful thing in a way to hear that story, to think that my first journey was actually over the Gore Bridge, and, and at least for a short time I was um, sitting in the back of a car in a cot beside the river. Um, so it started there, but the we lived in East Gore, and the river was a playground really, um, I have a photograph in the book of me um, up to my shoulders as a one-year-old in the river with my father uh, standing over me. Um, and we picnicked and, um, and swam in the river right from those early days. So my f- early, very earliest memories are, um, are of the river, really. It was such, a, uh, such a, an important uh, thing in the landscape for a, for a child. It was my wild place when I was growing up. So it goes back right to the start. Mm. And such a beautiful thing for that age where um, children were outdoors all the time and it would mm. be such a huge part of your adventure playground. Yes, it was. And, and, and that was a great thing. But it was also, it was considered by my parents and my grandparents who lived just over the, uh, over the um, flood bank from the, from the Matara uh, to be dangerous as well. And my grandparents in particular, who I spent a lot of time with, um, used to tell me uh, well-intentioned lies about what would happen to me if I got over that flood bank as a little boy. That there would be crocodiles and all sorts of things waiting for me in the um, in those uh, backwaters and so on. But it didn't work. It just drew me even, <laughs> even closer to it. So, I was going to uh, say that wouldn't be a very good deterrent for an adventurous not, wee man. Not at all. <laughs> and. Um, so yes, those those moments swimming in the river, particularly with my with my family, and it's where it's where the people on our street. We were just two or three. We lived two or three blocks from the river, and he score. Um, it's where they went to swim. Really, we didn't have a car, and uh, I'm not even sure if there's a, a public 
swimming pool in, in Gore at that time. That's where we went. Mm. Yeah. Do you mm. still live close to the river? No, I, I live uh, in Dunedin now, and I've lived in Dunedin for quite some time, but I still feel close to the river. Mm. I've fished it um, and walked it uh, almost all of my life. I was mm. I had um, a short period in uh, working in London and, and in Auckland, but apart from that, I've been... Um, uh, close to the river. I have a, I have a house um, that I share with a couple of friends um, about 10 minutes drive from the river in northern Southland, so I get across there a lot. So I still, it's the landscape of my happiness really. I spend a lot of time there. Now in your introduction um, to the book you talked about how the Matara River isn't really like celebrated in mm. literature this way some other bodies of water or waterways mm. are. Now why do you think it is underappreciated? I think it's true of our rivers uh, generally, I th- because I wrote the book partly because I wanted to leave a record of the river um, to describe what it meant to me, a sort of a love letter to the river in a way, um, for other people to read in the future. Um, I, ref- I Because I wished people earlier had written about the river, and I've thought about why they didn't. It's not just the Matara, it's um, very few of our rivers have been written about in that way. Um, I think people were very busy, you know, we're modifying the landscape, we'd moved, uh, the European settlers when they came here were, um, I think, really busy uh, changing the landscape and um, making a living. And those sort of um, um, reflective times perhaps weren't weren't so common, um, yeah. So you don't tend to get your odes to the river, although I, I should probably add that I have a slight bias towards the Matara River because as part of my life as an author I did use it appallingly and dump a body in there in a murder mystery <laughs> so it has had a little little twinge of in, in the literary fields. <laughs> I did I read your book uh, partly because the Matara did feature in it. Yes. Mm. Now um, fly fishing of course is no, this book sort of talks about some of your stories with that but it is mm. featured hugely in your life now mm. for you what is the allure of fly fishing well the, the, there are a range of things um it's a it's a it's a um it's it's a wonderful pastime. It's an excuse in many ways to walk up a stream and have all day to do it. One of those, um, I think, sitting by a stream looking at the river go past is an ancient pastime. And nowadays we have very few excuses to do that. So to some extent, um, fly fishing uh, gives you that excuse. And uh, so I spend a lot of time walking up the river but it's more than that. Uh, fly fishing, to do it well, you need to understand the geography of the river, both above the surface and the, the geography of the bed of the river. Um, you really do need to understand the insects uh, which drive, the, uh, drive fly fishing. That's what the trout feed on, and uh, uh, to some extent that's what we're looking to imitate. Um, I, I really enjoy that aspect of it. it to, to do it well also, you need to look for all the cues in nature that you can possibly find, and they are um, you know, the changing weather, temperature of the, of the water, what the birds are doing. The birds are seeing what's happening um, on the river. I was Much, intrigued by that, but it never occurred to me yeah. about how observational you have to be. You do, and, and quite often as I'm walking up the river, I, I kind of know because I've done it so often, um, when the hatches of mayflies in particular that drive the kind of fishing that I enjoy might take place. But 
the birds have a better sense of it and I watch the uh, uh, the terns and the swallows and so on and the, and the gulls at times around the river and they have a better sense of it and when I see them darting above the river and, and uh, swooping I know that the insects are starting to hatch so there's that there's also there's a grace in fly fishing it's about um, something about the act of casting which is a graceful thing and um, it's it lies at the heart of fly fishing and it's a kind of in a, in a way it's a beautiful thing but it's also a thing that we've done to make fishing more difficult I mean if we were just interested in catching fish we'd use a net and um, the very quickly wouldn't be many fish left and it's not something that I would like to do. I floundered <laughs> with my family when I was a kid, but um, netting for trout w- would have no allure at all. So there's a, and finally, I think I, I like the historic nature of it. That Isaac Walton, back at the time of Shakespeare, wrote about uh, fishing the the um, the spring creeks and so on in south south uh, west and southeast uh, England. Uh, in a way that um, I could relate to the, the 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 tools he was using are very familiar to me. So it's an ancient pastime as well. So in the course of making it more difficult with fly cast of casting and things like that, yeah. it, it's actually elevated it into almost like an art form, hasn't it? And that ties in. <laughs> Bad pun, Vanda, um, with the actual flies themselves. So is tying your own flies, is that part of your enjoyment of fly fishing? Is that something you do? It is, yeah. So I've been, I've been doing quite a lot of that recently. And um, so that's, a, that's, that's definitely um, one of the nice aspects of it because, once again, I mean, I, um, um, it's one of the few things I do with my hands that, where I make something. And um, it's a kind of a double enjoyment because as I'm tying the flies, I contemplate their use and then when I'm on the river I I love the idea that I'm uh, casting these uh, flies at fish that um, that I've tied myself so I tie the bulk of them. Mm. So it has this beautiful creative element as well as the whole observational element as well as the I suppose in a way meditative element Mm. of being on the water. Yeah. It sounds like the Mm. perfect thing. (laughs) In some ways it is I think (laughs) I've said to somebody uh, Golf is described as a good walk uh, spoiled, and I think uh, fly fishing is a good walk enhanced in many ways. Which is great. But then in the end, it's drawn me to the river to the point now where I think I love the river as much as I love fly fishing, and hence my walk up the the river. Now, upstream on the Matara is your story of a rather epic journey, um, walking from the river's outlet at Fort Rose to its source in the Erie Mountains. Now, you're not a spring chicken, (laughs) so whatever possessed you to undertake this journey? Well, partly for that reason. I mean, it was that sense of uh, needing some adventure. I thought it would be a challenging, slightly adventurous thing to do. Um, But I thought... it, it was a, I wanted to make this pilgrimage to the river in a way. Um, I thought that because I'd started to think about writing a book on the river at that time, and I thought this could the walk up the river could form the centerpiece, if you like, of the um, of the book. So it was a it was a it was a record of a pilgrimage to the river, really, which is what I wanted to do. And that part of it, whilst it it carries some stories of fly fishing. It's more about um, the landscape of Southland, um, the places the river flows through, the townships, the friendships. 
I, I love the idea that the Matara, despite the fact that people haven't written about it, my old friend Brian Turner wrote a poem um, dedicated to me back in the 70s uh, about one of its tributaries, October on the Otomita. But um, it has it has a literary source in the sense that its headwaters in the Air Mountains mm-hmm. come out of the, the Matara saddle. And on one side of the Matara saddle is Jane Peak, and on the other side is Air Peak. So it's uh, it sits nicely between <laughs> Jane Air. That's utterly mm. perfect, isn't yeah, it? Yeah. <laughs> so how physically demanding was that walk for you? It, m- more demanding than I anticipated, actually. I, it's like a lot of these things. When you set off, you have dreams and expectations about how it might go, and it, the the hard slog of these things is often pushed to the back of your mind. Um, but once I started, the slog became quite apparent, and the weather was pretty terrible that summer of 2017. So I was battered by wind. Um, the lower river is um, is difficult to walk beside because it's been pretty well fenced now from from cows and things, and that's uh, that's a good thing. But it meant I clambered over, under, sorry, more electric fences than I ever <laughs> want to see in my life. But, um, yes, not the most fun event by the sounds of it from yeah. the book. So I, I quite quickly ditched my fishing gear and thought, no, this is just simply a walk. Mm-hmm. And, um, and walking without a rod allowed me to lift my eyes a little and look more at the landscape and think about um, um, many things about the landscape. Mm-hmm. And in that, looking at the landscape and being able to lift your eyes, did the journey yield any surprises? No. Uh, well, it, it pulled together. It helped me pull together many feelings that have been developing over, a, I think, a long time. That sense of being the river clearly not there for me. The river is there for itself, and as is the landscape. But that sense that I have increasingly that I'm just part of this whole thing, um, that you that um, you can't escape that, particularly when you spend so much time um, on the rivers and looking at what happens around them. The whole wonder of the water cycle, um, the 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 um, the energy of the sun lifting the water in the Tasman off the sea and dumping it as snow in the Alps and and uh, that water slowly making its way back out to the ocean to join all the waters that have ever flowed, all the rivers that have ever flowed, is such a miraculous thing in a way. So I, my, my sense of, of awe at that and the, and the fragility, if you like, of that, of that landscape and uh, how much it's changed, those things were really reinforced by uh, my walk. Mm. And I was um, intrigued that on this particular journey, um, you started at the outlet to mm. the river yeah. at Fort Rose rather than at the source. Was mm. there any particular reason you went from where this, in its vastness, mm. goes and joins the ocean rather than starting at that first little trickle? Well, it, it was it was an interesting internal debate I had with myself because the natural route would have, I think, been to have got into the headwaters and then followed the river down. Um, for selfish reasons, I, I, my preference always has been to walk towards the mountains. I've loved the that landscape of northern, south, and the Umbrella Mountains, the Garvies, the Matara Range, and the Air Mountains have been something I've looked towards uh, much of my life, and and I felt walking towards that would be would be um, better in some ways. Um, I thought also, I mean, the river clearly, even though it's one river and it's made up of so many tributaries, 
as you move away from the coast and away from the intensive farming, the river becomes more and more a river that you can totally fall in love with. It's a beautiful mountain stream in the end, absolutely gorgeous. And I thought ending there would be a more attractive proposition than ending on the coast, although at Fort Rose, I love my time there, and I, it, it's a beautiful river as it slides quietly into the ocean there. Mm. And one of the things uh, about the book that is clearly apparent, and, and from your words in this conversation, is that you know, your love and concern for, for the environment mm. on the whole. So how much has the Matara River changed um, over your lifespan and your association mm. with it? Well, significantly, um, and it's it's not a it's not all a one way story. Um, I mean, I have history here. I, I uh, when I was a boy, I worked for my uncle who had a bookstore on the main street of Matara when Matara Township actually had a quite a nice main street. Um, and one of my jobs was to pick up the rubbish bin in the morning and walk to the bridge and dump the rubbish into the bridge. And the other shopkeepers did that also. And, this is and, a shocking thought for modern it's, day. It's a terrible thing. And the river at Gore um, and Matara had raw sewage going into it and a massive amount of industrial pollution going in at Matara Township. Now, much of that has been improved. So the river, in many ways, the main stem of the river, has less pollution, less obvious pollution going into it than um, when, when I can first recall it. But other things more subtle have happened. Um, the, intensive, the intensification of farming and essentially just the overwhelming, really, of parts of Southland by, by dairy cows has, and, the, and the additional nitrogen and fertilisers and so on that have gone onto the land have had an impact. And I see it particularly in the, those small streams that run into it, which are critical to the health of our rivers, uh, where tussock has been burnt and disked and ploughed and um, and then pasture sown and tile drains put in. So as I look at those stre- those streams that feed it and uh, the lifeblood of it really, I see less invertebrate life, the mayflies and the caddis and the dobson fly, the kura. Um, uh, the numbers, I think, have gone, have gone down. There's more sediment in the streams than before. Uh, um, I, think we'll, I think we're paying a price for it. Um, if if nitrates turn the rivers red, I, I, I read somebody recently talking about that, and I thought he was absolutely right. If nitrate turned rivers red, there'd be an outcry, but they don't. So much of what happens in rivers is unseen unless you really look closely and turn over the stones and spend a lot of time and in subtle ways. They're in trouble, and we need to we need to find ways to uh, live in better harmony with much of our natural world, but also, um, you know, the farming and the sale of products from the land has been important in terms of our prosperity. So, these are complex issues. Mm. Many of my friends in the south are farmers. I understand. I understand. I think I understand their issues also. Mm. So, if the um, ecosystem is changing, how has that affected the fishery? element of the river? Well, I think on balance, it's not as good as it used to be. And some of the, I've written a couple of stories there, one on the, in my book, one on the Otomita stream and the other on a Spring Creek, Fortune Creek. And both of them are just a shadow of what they used to be. And, and, you know, that sort of breaks my heart, really, to see that happen. The main river and, um, and the Waikaya, which is its main tributary, and some of the other tributaries of the river, still fish 
quite well. They, I, I said recently to somebody, you know, they first, we, we have enough great days to know how good it can be, but they also remind us how much we've lost as well, and we've definitely lost something. I think I've been kind of fortunate to have lived uh, when I have before the impact of of man really on that landscape has been you know just totally apparent mm. Mm. and of course um, being a fisherman you meet some interesting characters who also um, are drawn to the river can you tell us a bit, a bit about a few of the um, fellow fly fishers that you've met along the journeys mm. well some of my most long-standing friendships most of them really have been um, friendships developed through fly fishing and and love of the rivers back in the 70s we were um uh, and save the rivers campaign, looking for conservation orders on rivers and and so on. And those those friendships have been sustained, even though um, many of our views on the world and so on have 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 gone off in different directions. We are kind of glued together by this love of um, of that landscape and of the river and and of trout. And if it's some extraordinary. Um, met some wonderful people, both foreigners and and locals, and I talk about some of them in the book. We we're lucky enough to have um, some poets who fish with us. Kevin Island comes down a couple of times a year and fishes with us, and he's the most wonderful man. Who is um, he's a, even though, as you said earlier, um, I'm no spring spring chicken. Kevin's uh, <laughs> even less of a spring chicken, and he shows us a way to um, live our lives into into the future. Um, um, wonderful generosity from farming friends in Belfer and Northern Southland. Um, it's been it's been a rich experience. Now you've undertaken this pilgrimage, tick, <laughs> done, the, mm. done the big pilgrimage, and and recorded your perceptions and stories in a book. So what's next for you? I'd like to continue to write. Uh, I have been thinking about what might be next. Um, and it will be. I, 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 um, I read widely, but I, I particularly like some some of the very good nature writers that exist in, around the world now. And um, I'd like to write something else in, the, in that area. Whether I've um, whether it would be a book or not is another matter. But um, yeah, I, lo- I love the process of writing. I've been a reader all my life, but uh, the thought of writing didn't really come to me until about a decade ago. And I had, I've had a few stories published in Australia and um, one in the US in Grey Sporting Journal. And it gave me that sort of sense of encouragement to actually believe that I could get something down about the river I loved. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, I think you certainly have a gift as a storyteller, which is um, very apparent in the book. So thank you so much, Dougal, for coming on the show today and talking about Upstream on the Matara and your life as a fly fisherman, and we wish you all the very best. Oh, thank you, Vanda. Look, I've, I've enjoyed the opportunity to talk with you. So that is our very first show of... 2021. So thank you for listening in and also thank you to my guests uh, Mira Harrison and Douglas Rillstone. I look forward to bringing you some more fascinating folk from the world of books next month. Until then enjoy plenty of great reading and plenty of reading New Zealand writers books. You know we're truly blessed with many incredible writers who are recognised around the world and also we have so many wonderful writers um, such as Douglas who tell our local stories as well. So enjoy them all. 
The university bookshop is evil because it tempts me so with its otherworldly, picture-perfect, just-smell-those-books-and-breathe atmosphere, with its staff who entice me with, Ooh, look, have you read this? Or have you seen that? And we know you need this. With its cruelly situated right at the front so you trip over at New Zealand new releases table. And worst of all, worst of all, with the irresistible treasures in Book Lovers Corner, the university bookshop is evil. You have been warned. This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air.